Hey, well, good morning, everybody. Um, we're in the book of Galatians. We've been in the book of Galatians for four or five weeks now, but we're doing a deep dive in these couple of verses. But I want to help you kind of understand the context for these verses. So far, in the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul's just been arguing from the standpoint that, hey, the gospel he preaches, the good news about Jesus that he talks about, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for forgiveness of sin, that that gospel came directly from Jesus. It didn't come from any other man. And that was important because Paul's point is that when, when man tries to produce a gospel, when people, ordinary people like you and like me in this room, right, when we try to produce a gospel, that gospel will almost always revolve around our enoughness. It will almost always revolve around what we can do to bridge the gap between the life of God and our lives, what we have to do, the way that we have to live. And Paul says, no, 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 the gospel begins and ends with Jesus. It started with him. He took the initiative. We didn't take the initiative. Right? And because he took the initiative, the good news is about his coming on our behalf. It's not about something that we can do or some sort of self-discipline that we can muster. In other words, the good news of the gospel is that it's not about you and me. It's all about him and what he's done. It's not about you and I and what we can do. It's all about Jesus and what he has already done. And this is so important to get. And then he kind of crescendos this argument in the verses that we've uh, landed on today. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a deep dive into these two verses. And here's what I just want to point out. When you read through Galatians 2.20, it's really simple, right? What, what he's saying is this. Look, your life and my life, our lives are meant to be built. Our lives are meant to be built on Jesus. Our lives, our identities, our meaning, our purpose, our enoughness, the justifying story of your life and mine is meant to be Jesus and Jesus alone. And he's the only adequate life giver and life sustainer on which we can build our one and only lives. But it's it's all about building on him and out of the identity that he gives us. But, but we, what we do as people, because Paul says, look, people always pervert the gospel. They make it about them. So last week we looked at a book. I want to show you another picture of this book. Uh, this was a book I was actually reading while I was preparing the Galatians series. And really what the author here is talking about is um, how even though more and more churches are closing in America and becoming tap rooms and movie theaters, that the American people have never been more religious. And it's not so much that religion has been extinguished. It's more that religion has just migrated to things that we would normally in the church call secular. So like, in other words, you know, we have a sacred life or a spiritual life, and then we have a secular life or, or a secular world that we live in every day. And his contention is that you can't extinguish the religion impulse. You can only rebrand it. And so as capital R religion is diminishing in our culture, small R religion is thriving, and it's thriving in things like career. In other words, people migrate to their careers and they use their career to prop them up. They use their career uh, at, to 
as the justifying story of their lives. We believe we should all have careers. We believe careers are good things. But when you begin to form your identity out of the title associated with your name, it becomes toxic. And it's not just career. It's career, it's parenting, it's technology, it's food, it's politics, and it's romance. And he says, hey, all these things have become our new religion, and what's the answer? So today, so last week, we began to talk about romance as one of the places that we go to to find life. In other words, romance is one of the places that we turn uh, to as the justifying story of our lives, right? Hey, in other words, if he loves me or if she loves me, then I must be worthy to be loved. And so I'm going to put all my eggs in that romance basket, right? And so uh, I want to dive a little bit deeper into the romance. Then we're going to talk about parenting, uh, because this is absolutely vital to our discussion, okay? Uh, now, um, so let's just go back to, to romance. Uh, the first thing when I, that I think about with romance, oh, by the way, last week too, we did talk about performancism, that in other words, a lot of us derive our identity or we, we lean into performance as the justifying story of our lives, right? So I am my performance. If I'm performing well, I can feel good about myself. If I'm not performing well, I don't feel good about myself, right? So we become our performance. And again, we believe in performance. We believe in trying to excel and do things well. But when our identities get tied up in that, when we're leaning into performance for our enoughness, it becomes toxic, so romance, um, you know, we said last week that when we go to romance, what we really want to do is we want to marry a Savior. We want to marry someone that will fulfill us, that will complete us, that will help us, that will walk through life with us, that will love us unconditionally, right? And here's the problem with romance. The problem is you cannot get close to someone who is using you to prop up their enoughness. If you're in a relationship with someone who's using you to prop up their enoughness, it will always be about them, right? This is about two half people trying to use one another to become whole. And folks, that never ever works. When two people enter into a marriage relying on the other person in that marriage or relationship to make them whole, that marriage is doomed from the start because in that moment you are expecting something from someone else they cannot deliver. And then we talked about the soulmate myth, right, that's so prominent in this deal. In other words, the soulmate myth says this, hey, somewhere out there is the perfect romantic partner for me. I mean, the yin to my yang, right? Uh, I mean, the, the black to my white, whatever, however you want to say it. You know, there's some, somewhere out there, there's someone perfect for me, and the success of my life depends on me finding them. And heaven help you, no pun intended, heaven help you if you don't find the one or if you find them too late. And many, many people have ditched on marriages and ditched on families because they came to believe, I finally found the one, but I found him or I found her 
too late, right? And so then there's all this collateral damage that happens uh, uh, that's associated with this myth, right? And here's another reason I think this myth is so um, destructive. What's most destructive about it is this. It just robs and steals away energy from all the relationships that you're engaged in right now. From the, from the relationship that you're in right now with a real, living, breathing human being, right? Because it, the reality is some of us are just killing time with someone, right? We're putting energy, but we're spending all this extra emotional energy daydreaming about this perfect person out there and what my life is going to be like when I find them and all this. And we, we exert all this energy in uh, pushing this myth to the limits, right? When? It's just a myth. One of the truths of the gospel, men and women, is this, that none of us are perfect. None of us are ever going to completely live out uh, the expectations that others of us, we're never going to love perfectly. None of us are ever going to be able to love perfectly. But the good news of the gospel is that we already are loved perfectly. That we don't need to love perfectly. But if you go into a a union believing in the soulmate myth and that there's this person who's going to fulfill all your needs, all your desires out there, you are going to be miserable the rest of your life. And so I just, what I want to do is I want to talk about a better way, just a better way. And it involves the story of Peter and Molly. Uh, So six years after a painful divorce... Molly met Peter. She was, by her own admission, cynical about love, especially the altar-bound kind. She'd been burned once already. Peter's first wife had died, and because of the void left in his life, he fell hard for Molly, countering her doubts with this relentless optimism and promising her all manner of bliss and security. And how do you think that worked out? Yeah, when, when we promise happiness to another person, we just made a promise that we can never, ever deliver on. You can't be responsible for the happiness of another human being, right? But eventually, Peter won Molly over, and they got married. Um, but all did not transpire, shocker, as Peter had predicted, right? His son from, a pre- from his previous marriage, refused to talk to Molly. They accrued debt. Their finances didn't work out the way they thought. And Molly kind of confesses that in the past, when disappointment like this reared its head, she would do one of three things. And you've probably done at least one of these three things yourself. First, she would bail on the relationship. Second, she would stick with it but blame the man forever. Or thirdly, she would stick with it and blame herself. Now, do any of those options sound really good to you? Not to me, okay? She recalls the night that things came to a head. They were unpacking their bags after a visit with their family, and uh, she was uh, just lamenting her children's and his children's continued resistance to her. And finally... Peter dropped the clothes he was holding, and under his breath he muttered, I can't take it anymore. It's too much for me. I know I said I wanted us to talk about everything, but I can't handle this. 
In the thick silence that followed, Molly finished putting away the laundry. Peter went downstairs. She got, on the, she got in the shower, turned on the water, and sat on the tiled floor in grief and in disbelief. Now, you might think that was the end of Peter and Molly, but God began to write a better story with their lives. And so later on, she writes this. Here's what she says. I still wonder why the disappointments didn't doom our relationship. But now, eight years later, listen, I think our real relationship began with our mutual disappointments. In the aftermath, something new and wonderful happened. Peter had let me down, but he at least cared about my reaction. I didn't have to pretend that the falling bricks didn't hurt. That's why he's a good person for me. I can dream a little for myself, and if the dreams don't come true, I'm not left alone to pick up the pieces. Here's what I want you to see. Painful as it was, the death of Molly's expectations birthed something beautiful. They birthed a more unconditional love. Isn't that what all of us in the room want? We want to be loved unconditionally by another human being. But friends, it's only through painful circumstances and disappointments with another person that we learn how to love unconditionally. Here's the way uh, she says it. Instead of, I love you as long as you don't disappoint me, she said, I learned a new operating philosophy. I love you in the middle of our mutual disappointments. Friends, that is a far healthier and better model to build a marriage on. That is far more akin to a beautiful love than the conditional love that would say, I love you as long as you behave and act and say all the things that I think you should say. Friends, that's not love. That's control. That's manipulation. There's nothing loving about that, right? See, Uh, the reality is, I said this before, every one of us in the room, we want to marry a Savior. But do you know what the good news of the gospel is? The good news of of the gospel is that we don't have to marry a Savior because we already have one. One has already come for us. And he's promised to give us a new identity and to be the justifying story of our lives and to tell a better story with our lives than we could tell on our own with all the coercion and all the manipulation and all the fear and all the worry because everything depends in this world on me. And the good news of the gospel is it doesn't have to all depend on you anymore. It just doesn't. Now, so that's the romance piece. Now I want to talk a little bit about how. Uh, and last week we showed you the revised substandard perversion. It's not really the Bible, but it's the version of the Bible that we sometimes live. I want to show it to you again for romance. So we say things like this, right? I've been joined with Aaron, and it's no longer I who live, but she lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in her trusting that she will love me and that she will give her life for me. 
Uh, that's, the, that's the revised substandard perversion, uh, the small r religion that many people live by. Now I want to move to parenting. How many parents out here this morning? Wow, okay. Uh, a lot of us in the room. Now you may have noticed as parents, but there's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, these days on parenting but isn't it weird how as much I mean if you walk into a uh, like a bookstore I mean there's whole sections on parenting right but isn't it weird how ill-equipped we we parents often feel in spite of all the knowledge and all the information I mean how is it that there are so many resources out there on parenting and we parents still feel like such idiots or am I the only one? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? Uh, I'm not the only one, and I know I'm not the only one, because not only have I done a lot of parenting, I've talked to a lot of parents. And I'll tell you this, it does not take a private eye to notice how much uh, the parenting section in the bookstore resembles a religious one. How to raise a happy child. How to raise a gritty child. How to raise a creative child. How to raise an intelligent child. How to raise a kind child. And I need you to hear me. These books all adopt an almost identical format to every Christian book I've ever read. Books like How to Pray, How to Evangelize, How to Disciple. Uh, they're built out of the same ilk. But instead of denominations, when it comes to uh, child rearing, we have, we have camps. There are camps. So, for example, when our kids were little, which was an embarrassingly long time ago, right, well, that one of the camps was a curriculum called Growing Kids God's Way. And in fact, uh, back in the early 90s, Jackie and I even taught that class right here at Shelbyville Community Church, Growing Kids God's Way. Now, over the years, I've come to kind of realize, I, I, I think about that title, and I go, that's just a little presumptive. Isn't it growing kids God's way? I mean, like, are you sure, you know, that you've got this all buttoned up and nailed down? Can you really call it that? Because, like, now that I've been through it, I'm not so sure, right? But, uh, and now, out of growing kids God's way came a camp that many, many more of you will be familiar with and that you will have heard of. This is the Baby Wise Camp. Anybody familiar with that camp? So, Wow, really? Come on, let's interact. Okay, just a few of us, I'm absolutely shocked. So there's two camps. On one end of the continuum is the baby-wise camp. Here's essentially what this camp says. You want to put the child on your schedule, and you need to have them on a schedule uh, for them to, to develop confidence and succeed, but you don't need to come running every time one of your children cries. What they need is a schedule and strict discipline, okay? Now, on the other end of the spectrum is a camp of parenting called the attachment 
camp. And this camp is exactly the opposite. They would say, oh, no, 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 that's terrible. You're ruining your kid if you do this. And by the way, this is kind of part of the literature of parenting. They're tapping into the fear that we parents have about how effectively we're doing our jobs. Because every one of us in the room, in moments we don't like to talk about, often feel like the idiots right, that I just referenced a little bit earlier. And I can say this because, you know, I've already, my kids are mostly out of the house. I have one still in the house. She's in college. So I can make some of these confessions, right, as a parent that we're so often unwilling to make because I'm like through it, right? So in the attachment camp, it's the child who sets the schedule. And the, ch- the parent should be there at the whim of the child. In other words, let the child eat when the child wants to eat. Let the child sleep when the child wants to sleep, even if it means you don't sleep, right? And, so, and, 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 part, and part of the attachment method of parenting says this, paramount is the bonding that occurs between the mom and the child. And so, and, and because of the, you know, because of developmental psychology and what we now know, I mean, we can really resonate with this, right? That, man, we know that in the early formative years, if there's not a bond between the mother and the child, I mean, uh, that could be debilitating. And so the attachment method of parenting uh, moves in the opposite direction of that, right? Now, um, Okay, so uh, what I, here's what I want to do. Uh, no matter where you fall on the continuum, no matter where a quote, uh, I'm going to use this because no matter where an expert falls on the continuum, and let me just say this, there's no such thing. Listen, I know parents who've raised kids and done everything right, at least from the outside looking in, Right? And those kids didn't turn out the way that they had hoped. And on the other hand, I know parents who did almost everything wrong. And, and great kids sprung out of that somehow. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. So what I'm, what I'm trying to begin to get at is that we can't always, as parents, take credit for the successes of our children And we can't and shouldn't always take credit for the failures of our children. And we're going to come back to that one. Because I think that we do. So no matter where an expert falls on the continuum, their manuals always give the sense that there are things that we can do as parents, that we have some power or control over the child-rearing process and how our children turn out. And in fact, here's the dark side of that. Rarely does a month go by that some fresh parenting book doesn't come out and it makes headlines telling us all how we are currently ruining our children, right? Uh, So, you know, and you'll hear, well, hey, this was the conventional wisdom that some new fresh book will come out, uh, just appealing to the fear that we all have as parents. Listen, this is how these books make lots of money. When you start to appeal to people's fears and insecurities, oh, man, I mean, it's, you're going to get rich doing that, especially when it involves our children. So what I want us to recognize is that the heart of all of uh, 
that at the heart of much of our parenting, there are two words. There is the word control, and there is the word fear. We're afraid we're not doing it right. We're afraid we're not doing it as well as our neighbors. We, and, and we believe that we have all the control, right? And there's this, uh, and, and listen, control and fear make terrible parenting partners. You know why? Because they never go away. They're never sated. And there's a cartoon I ran across. This was actually in the book, Seculosity. I want to show this to you. This cartoon, I think, illustrates this perfectly. So you can kind of see these anxious, look how how concerned and worried the mom looks, right? And this is like an elementary. I mean, this kid's feet isn't even touching the ground yet, right? And these parents, and you see the word admissions across the door, right? And the, you see the dad leaning in and he says to his son, now remember, be the yourself that we talked about. Now, I want to tell you why I think this is such a powerful powerful story oh and by the way and you'd have to have been hiding under a rock right to not hear about all the recent college admissions scandals I mean people are going to jail because it was so important to them to get their children into the right schools that they were manipulating and massaging the system many people would say cheating paying off people bribing people to get their kids into college. So, I mean, when, when, you're, when you lean into that, this doesn't look so funny anymore, does it? Because there's a lot more truth in this comic than we would be willing to admit. And this is why, listen, I want to talk about why parental overinvestment is so prominent in our culture and in our lives and why we go there so, so quickly. Because uh, here's why. Listen, in this cartoon, hear me, look, those parents are on trial as much as their son is. Because if that admissions counselor says no to that son, he is saying no to the aspirations of those parents. And those parents' identities depend on their kids' successes. And this is why you see such irate dads on athletic fields. Because in ways those dads don't want to admit, see, they didn't get where they wanted to athletically, so they're going to live their life vicariously through their son or their daughter, and they're going to use their son's and their daughter's successes, listen to me, to make up for their failures. And we as parents do this all the time in ways we're not even aware of. Now listen, every parent wants their kid to do well. And you should, and that's healthy. But when your children's success or failures get wrapped up in your identity, you have drifted into uh, parenting as a religious endeavor, endeavor because you and I are using our kids to prop up our enoughness. You see this when you turn on the TV and you see anxious moms primping their little girls for these beauty pageants, right? I mean, it's so obvious when you, when you look at these and you see this stuff. What I see when I watch those shows is I watch moms who are trying to use their daughters. They don't 
think of it that way. They wouldn't say it that way. Maybe they're not even aware of it enough to be able to articulate it. But those moms are living vicariously through their daughters to make up. They're, they're counting on their daughters to succeed in order to make up for their own failures and their own lack. And so in this cartoon, whatever judgment comes on that son is also going to come on those parents. And they have begun to rely on that child for their enoughness. And as such, they are not raising a child. They are trying desperately to raise a little savior. Someone who will prop up their enoughness. And what I'm telling you is this gets even worse because we parents have become concerned not just with how our kids stack up against other kids. And by the way, every parent I talk to, you know the one thing they all have in common? My child is a freaking genius. Every one of us thinks that. And guess what? Just by, by the nature of the curve, all of our kids can't be geniuses. But we all think that they are. And we worry desperately about how our kids stack up against other children. But it gets even worse than that. When it gets wrapped up in our identity, we not only worry about how our kids stack up against other kids, we worry about how our parenting methods stack up against other parents. Because it's not just about our kids, it's just about us as equally as much. See? So we get all wrapped up in, in these parenting uh, comparisons, right? Now, here's what I need you to see. Um, so many of you are familiar with the term helicopter parenting, right? So this is when parents love their kids, they want the best for their kids, and so they hover, you know, and they're just overhead. And if there's a little obstacle their kids are about to encounter, they kind of swoop down and smooth out that obstacle. And then they swoop back up and they wait for the next obstacle for their kids in the name of love and in the name of wanting everything for their kids. Listen, it, this has been borne out in the research now. Do you know what helicopter parenting actually does? It doesn't prepare our kids to succeed. It doesn't. You know why? Because if a parent paves and smooths out every obstacle in a child's path, they will never learn how to deal with failure. They will never learn how to overcome any kind of difficulty. Because the moment a difficult a period comes around, mom and dad swoop in there and save the day and make it easy and then they go back to hovering and just kind of following along waiting for the next opportunity to swoop in there See, and it gets so listen when parenting begins to speak into our identities when we are using it to prop up our enoughness when we are relying on our children's successes to make up for our own sense of failures it's toxic our parenting isn't healthy anymore. In fact, this is what uh, David calls parenting as redemption. With the child cast in the role of Savior, making up for all of the parents' past failures and shortcomings. See? And... Let's just be honest, when, you, when you're thinking about parenting, reproduction, I mean, you start to really get into the realm of religious terminology. A lot, when you use words like this, well, legacy, 
like I want to leave the world something after I'm gone. And so my prodigy, you know, my seed, my son, my daughter, that's what I'm counting on for eternal life. I'm counting on them to bring something into the world long after I'm gone. I mean, you're squarely in religious territory at that point, right? So reproduction becomes kind of a means of immortality. But what if, what if, the gospel would tell us that we don't need our children to be our saviors what if the good news held out by the gospel is that there is something far more substantive and important that I can lean into for my enoughness as the justifying story of my life than my children that's exactly the hope held out by our gospel what if Jesus has already become a son a child in order to make you and I sons and daughters with a heavenly father who is perfect Right? I mean, if you're in the parenting gig for more than five minutes, it doesn't matter whether you're the child or whether you're the parent, right? You know that nobody gets this exactly right. But you and I, we have a Heavenly Father who always gets it right. And that is the hope held out by the gospel that our God gave his one and only son to make us his sons, his daughters. Now, uh, I want to talk about a little boy by the name of Ronan Rapp. He was born with Tay-Sachs disease. This is a rare genetic disorder for which there's no treatment and no cure. His mother, Emily, documented his short life in a blog that she turned into a book called The Still Point of a Turning World, which really uh, was just captured, I mean, this heartbreaking but yet beautiful experience of parenting a child with a terminal diagnosis. So listen, when you're parenting a child with a terminal diagnosis, all the secondary concerns go out the window. In other words, it doesn't matter what kind of food you feed the child or what sleeping method you favor or how many music classes they take. It will not alter their genetics. It will not extend their life. I mean, you still care about some of those decisions, but they're put in their proper perspective, she writes, right? More pressingly, pressingly, parenting a child with a terminal diagnosis means throwing out whatever plans or expectations you may have for your child's future. In other words, the beauty of it, if I could use that word, is that it forces a parent to live in the present tense in the most vivid of ways. And here's what Emily wrote. Before he died, here's what she said. She wrote these words. I have abandoned the future. And with it, any visions of Ronan scoring a perfect SAT or sprinting across a stage with a Harvard diploma in his hand, we're not waiting for Ronan to make us proud we don't expect future returns 
on our investment. We've chucked the graphs of developmental milestones and we avoid parenting magazines at the pediatrician's office. Ronan has given us a terrible freedom from expectations. A magical world where there are no goals, no prizes to win, no outcomes to monitor, to discuss, or to compare. And then she goes on to describe the day-to-day of parenting in this way as often peaceful and even blissful. And here's what she writes. Our only task as parents is to love. Our only task as parents is to love. I love that. I mean, Emily invokes, I mean, she talks about a form of love that is fundamentally unconcerned with results or behavior. And, it's, and her love becomes all the more powerful for it. And truth be known, part of the truth of the gospel is that you and I, we yearn for that kind of love. And there's only one place that you can find it. There's only one place that you can get it, and his name is Jesus. There is no one else coming for you. There is no other Savior for you. He is your true soul mate. And there are to be no others. It's always been Him, folks. It's always been Him. It's only Him. I want to go back to Galatians chapter 2 for a minute. If we could go back to Galatians 2, uh, 20 and 21. So, you know, you read these amazing words again, right? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but He lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I want to challenge you again. We gave out cards last week. I want to challenge you to commit this verse to memory. Because if you'll commit it to memory and it's rattling around in your head, it increases the odds dramatically that you will begin to look for life here. And that you will begin to find your life here. And that, that, that God will begin to use it to help you migrate away from a religion of performance or a religion of parenting or a religion of romance where it all depends. Listen, no matter who you are, right, you are going to put your faith in somebody or something. You may say, well, I'm not a man of faith. Oh, yes, you are. If you got married, if you had kids, you are a man of faith. And you put your faith in someone else. And all that means is it's possible for you to put your faith in Jesus. Everyone is a person of faith. It's just that we put our faith in different things. So then there's this next verse, verse 21. Let's pull that one up, Galatians 2, 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, in other words, if righteousness were through performance, 
if righteousness were about me keeping the rules, how well I was performing, that's not really a righteousness at all, right? Because I don't know about all of you, but I know my performance doesn't always measure up. And if I'm always relying on my performance uh, to be able to approach God, I would never approach God because my performance is never going to be good enough. And neither will yours. This is why we so desperately need the good news held out by Jesus. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, no reason whatsoever. There was no efficacy, no need for his death. If people could come into a saving relationship with God by keeping the rules, by being good enough. And yet, many of us in this room and most of your friends and family out in our world, that's how they believe. That's what they believe the message of Christianity is. They believe the message of Christianity is be a good person. And that's not the message of Christianity. Listen, folks, Christ did not come to make bad people good. He, he came to make dead people live. And there's a big difference between dying to make bad people good and dead people live. And this is why the resurrection of Jesus is so vital and so important, right? Because, listen, here's what I'm telling you. Grace is the way out. It's just grace. Otherwise, you will lean into your children for your enoughness. And in doing so, you will do them a terrible disservice. If you run from grace, you will run to romance as a competing religion to prop you up. And you will not be doing your spouse any favors and you will probably ruin that marriage in the process. Because there is nowhere else to go. Grace frees us from performance. It frees us from the need to be perfect parents. It frees us from the need to have a perfect partner or to be a perfect partner. The answer is grace. And it will always be grace. And there'll never be another answer other than grace. So how about you? What do you rely on as the justifying story of your life? Who or what are you putting your faith and hope in this morning? Because whatever it is, if it isn't Jesus, it's inadequate. It will not provide a sufficient foundation for your one and only life. And the reality is you deserve better and you need better. Actually, you know what? I overspoke. You don't deserve better. You and I, none of us in the room deserve. This is the point of grace, right? Grace operates in spite of deserve. Grace operates anyway. And that's the beauty and the wonder and the thrill of grace. And apart from Jesus... Our world is just devoid of grace. Do you know why our world is so devoid of grace? Do you know why it is that every time you pull up social media and it's just so, like, people are, like, going for the throat and it's, like, vile and they're saying these, they're being petty and saying these hateful things to one another? You know why that is? It's because all that stuff is in here. It's all in there. 
And so what's coming out of people's mouths is just because it's all in here. And they're relying on all these things in our world to prop up, to become the justifying story for their lives. And all those things are disappointing them. And so they're just spewing all that disappointment out on everybody else. I mean, this is just more evidence for our need for a Savior. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you and I, that we would not be a people, that, that you would not be a man, that you would not be a woman that would nullify the grace of God. Because if you nullify the grace of God in your life, if you say no to it, then at least where your life is concerned, Christ died for nothing, no purpose. So what's it going to be? Is it him or is it somebody else? Let's pray together.